episode 35. What exactly is the kingdom of God? What is meant by this phrase in scripture? This is a question we're going to look at in this episode of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. God bless you and welcome back, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. I am Kirk Van Odeham, your host for the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your question. And I'm looking forward to addressing uh, this all-important question uh, in this episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get to that very quickly, and I will try to make this quick, uh, I do want to encourage you, invite you to check out the website of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, and that website is kirkvan.com. Uh, there you can click on the podcast link and discover all the different means and methods by which you can access uh, the podcast. And also you can uh, contact uh, the podcast and submit your own question to be answered on future episodes. As I said, you can submit that question through our website, kirkvan.com. Alternatively, you can connect with us on Facebook, and that link is facebook.com slash BibleFAQ with Kirk Van. And uh, you can ask your question there through a PM. Also, you can get notifications and updates by joining with us, liking us, uh, and following us on Facebook. And then uh, also you can submit that question through email, and that address is simply ask at kirkvan.com. Well, let's get right into the question that we have for today. And this question comes to us from Eloise. Eloise is a, a wonderful sister in the Lord, a friend, and a fellow member of River of Life in Muncie, Indiana, where I attend and serve in ministry. And uh, this question was relayed to me uh, in a personal co discussion, conversation. The question was raised to me, and Sister Ella specifically asked if I would uh, address this in the podcast. So summarizing her question as follows. I have been reading and studying about the phrase kingdom of God lately. I wanted to hear your thoughts on what this means. It seems many people define or explain this phrase in lots of different ways that aren't necessarily true or biblical. So thank you very much, Sister Eloise, for the question. And uh, I look forward to addressing it here in this episode. Well, kingdom of God, what does that mean? How is that defined and described by in, in the word of God? Well, of course, if we just look at that term in, in the common usage, if we didn't know anything about the Bible or we didn't know anything about theology, what have you, we know what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a country or a government or a territory, whatever it may be, that's ruled by a king or a monarch. It could be a queen in some cases. Uh, but as the name kingdom implies, kingdom uh, originally ruled by a king. So that's what it means. So it's not only that that territory or that country or that area, not the land itself, although that would be a part of it, uh, but it would also be the people who are subjects to that king or that monarch who lived in uh, that kingdom. And then a kind of a second, a secondary uh, way that we think of the phrase in English today, at least how we use it, um, you might have heard like the kingdom of nature or um, 
or, or means has many applications that describe a sphere or a realm in which something is do dominant. So it, w these applications refer to the nature of the ideas of the classifications of various things. The animal kingdom, for example, uh, would be a way. So we can understand the term kingdom in that phrase as well, or in that uh, way as well, I should say. Now, when it comes to scripture and it comes to a biblical or theological understanding of what the phrase kingdom of God means, I think we have to first and foremost understand that it's referring to the spiritual sovereignty of God. Uh, and what we mean by sovereignty, that's kind of a theological term. It just means supreme power or the supreme authority or rule over something. So much like when we're just referring to a, a normal kingdom that's ruled by a king, uh, of course, that king in the biblical sense would be God. And the kingdom is, uh, is that area and those people over which he has supreme power, supreme authority, supreme rule. Uh, and so, and this is in a, a spiritual sense, certainly, uh, and we'll talk about other senses here in a bit. So, in other words, it's the domain over which God's sovereignty extends. It's the realm in which God's will is fulfilled. Um, and we could go on with similar explanations and descriptions, but I think you get the idea. So all of these are correct. This idea of spiritual sovereignty, uh, dominion or domain, uh, and the, the will being extended and fulfilled, all of these have to do with God's kingdom. Uh, so I think the concept, if we are to define what God's kingdom is, the concept of God's kingdom is that place in which his absolute rule uh, and authority reigns, his sovereignty over all things. So what does that include? What does that entail? Well, there's two aspects here. And the first aspect in terms of what we think about when, when we think about what the kingdom of God means in biblical context. So the first aspect of this would be that God's kingdom includes all of creation, everything that exists, the entire universe, all of nature and the laws of nature. Uh, everything that we know about is the kingdom of God uh, because by virtue of the fact that he created it and rules over it. And uh, there's, I'm sure there's many verses of scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that conveys this idea of the kingdom of God, his sovereignty and rule over everything, all creation and the universe itself. For example, in Psalms 103 and 19, Scripture tells us that the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So when it means overall, it very literally means overall, over all his creation, over all the universe, over everything that exists. And there's many similar verses, again, that we could point to that have that same meaning. Uh, this would include both heaven and earth. Uh, the physical universe, the world, the earth itself, everything that is seen, and also those things that exist in the unseen realm of heaven, angels, etc. And so everything, all of God's creation and the universe itself is the kingdom of God in that sense. And that is one biblical sense in which we can understand the term. However, in the New Testament in particular, the phrase kingdom of God describes uh, is, is described in terms 
of God's human subjects, uh, God's human subjects. Uh, so when we read about the kingdom of God in, um, in the New Testament, we're thinking about God's sovereignty and his authority and rule over a kingdom. But in this sense, the kingdom would be the subjects of the kingdom, the people over which he rules, specifically those who willingly submit to God's authority would be those who are part of God's kingdom. Those who obey his rule and commandments are a part of his kingdom. Those who refuse to submit then are not a part of God's kingdom. So in this sense, in this New Testament sense, we just simply refer to the kingdom of God as all those who willingly submit to God's authority. Now, in this way, uh, we can say the kingdom, this understanding of the kingdom of God, it's really tantamount to salvation. It's tantamount to eternal life. Uh, so we're talking about that group, that body of people uh, who are subjects of the king himself, God being the king. So as such, we read in the New Testament that admittance into the kingdom is equated with the biblical plan of salvation, we would sometimes call it. To use more biblical terminology, it'd be equated with the new birth or being born again of water and of spirit, as scripture talks about, which of course is baptism in water and of spirit. And we see this clearly in the often quoted uh, passage in John chapter number three. Uh, in verses three through five, and I'm reading from the CSB here, uh, Jesus speaks and says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse five, Jesus expounds upon and unpacks what that is a little bit. He says, Jesus answers and says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, here, certainly the kingdom of God is tantamount with salvation. It's tantamount with numbering ourselves among those who are God's uh, willing subjects and under God's authority and sovereignty. Now, in a sense, everyone's under God's author uh, authority and sovereignty, but those of us who are willing subjects, spiritual subjects to God, are a part of the kingdom of God. So there are those, uh, like I said, in a sense, everyone is, but in another sense, there are those who are part of the kingdom and those who are not. And of course, Jesus told Peter and, the, uh, and by extension, the other apostles in Matthew 16, that he was giving them, what, the keys of the kingdom. So we understand that the keys of the kingdom uh, uh, is the plan or the method or the commandment that uh, of salvation, the conditions of salvation, if you will, that were revealed first on the day of Pentecost and later many other times in the history of the church as well. And in Acts 2.38, of course, we receive this uh, commandment, what shall we do? The implication there, the question that is asked by the onlookers in Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? How shall we respond to this message of the gospel? What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to inherit eternal life? It's not expressly stated, but what they're asking is what shall we do to be a part of God's kingdom? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins 
and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. You must be born again of water and up and spirit, or you cannot see the kingdom of God, and you cannot enter the kingdom of God if you do not meet that criteria, and if you've not submitted yourself and made yourself a subject of the king in this way. And of course, that's not only on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but this same understanding uh, is of salvation is repeated in each account in which the Holy Spirit is being poured out. We see it uh, with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. We see it with the Gentiles in Acts chapter number 10. We see it with a random group of, of believers in Christ with an incomplete understanding of how to respond to the gospel in Acts chapter 19. In each of these situations, we see the same elements of water baptism and spirit baptism as the necessary uh, criteria and requirement to being obedient to the king, to being subject and entering into Christ's spiritual kingdom. But again, it's those who righteously submit to God and obey his word who are a part of the kingdom. So that's what the kingdom of God means in, in, the, in the New Testament um, uh, ideology, if you will. So if those, in order to be a part of the kingdom, if you need to obey and submit, what is the end of them who do not obey? And it's interesting that um, this is spelled out in the, in the epistles many, many times. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verses 9 through 10, off quoted, I'm reading here from the ESV. It says, do, not, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous, what, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to expound on that, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6. It uh, says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, excuse me. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So this is a list uh, that fairly well representative of a lot of different sins, a lot of different acts of disobedience that disqualify someone from entering into the kingdom of God, as opposed to those who obey and submit and make themselves as subjects of the king. These are those who disobey and is manifest in their acts of their disobedience. And this isn't the only place where it talks about people not being able to inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, there, there's several other places. I'll, remind, I'll, I'll bring up a couple here. In Galatians 5, uh, after listing a, an entire different list of, of attitudes and mentalities and, and sins and, and, and sins in terms of actions and, and uh, attitudes known as the works of the flesh. Paul refers to these are the works of the flesh. And I won't go through the chapter because or the verse because it's many things, but he rattles off 17 different things that are representative uh, of, of those characteristics that are our sins being manifest in disobedience. And he concludes that section in Galatians 5 and 21 when he says, they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is repeated again in Ephesians 5 and 5. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean spirit, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. So we understand that the kingdom of Christ, the 
kingdom of God are synonymous terms. Here they're lumped together, the kingdom of Christ and of God. Understanding that Christ and God are one and the same. It is Christ, it is God who is manifest in humanity. So that's what this means. Those of us who are the spiritual subjects, obedient and loyal to the King, which is Christ himself, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the book of Jude tells us. So in this sense, in the sense that the New Testament refers to the kingdom of God, we clearly see that God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, that God's rule is a spiritual rule, at least in the present time that's the case. And we'll uh, expound upon that in the moment. So we can think of God's kingdom then. We can explain it and describe it like this. We can think of it as God ruling in the hearts and the lives of his faithful, righteous people who are alive and in this world today as we await for the world to come. So there is an eternal kingdom that's coming. Uh, there is going to be a return of Jesus Christ. There is going to be a consummation of the age and the setup of a literal, physical, millennial kingdom followed by an eternal kingdom. But that's yet in the future. That's a physical manifestation and outworking of God's will and plan. But right now, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so there's this theological concept known as the visible church and the invisible church. Now, it's fairly clear that any individual can say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus. You can say, I follow the teaching of Jesus. You can say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. You could make all sorts of claims to this effect. Uh, however, uh, as is stated in the Bible many times, the Lord knows them who are his. Uh, so it's not only we, what we say and what we profess, but it's really if the uh, word of God is ruling in our hearts and in our lives. It's really if we are making ourselves subject to Jesus Christ. It's really if we are living in submission and obedience to him as the king of this kingdom that we are part of of the true kingdom of God. So this idea of the visible church, which is every group and every movement and every church and every denomination and every whatever you want to say uh, that professes Christianity to some degree. and But then there's the invisible church. Uh, and the invisible church is those who truly do belong to Jesus Christ, those whose lives are truly submitted and subject to Jesus Christ, who are a part of his true spiritual kingdom. And so, um, you know, hopefully, for the most part, those would be one and the same. Uh, but the scripture itself, itself teaches us that there's going to be wolves in the midst of the sheep, that there's going to be false teachers and false prophets. Uh, it started as soon as the church itself started. And so not everyone that professes Christianity, not everyone that professes to be a part of the kingdom is actually a part of the kingdom. So in that sense, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom if you would. And in John chapter number 18, Jesus talks about his kingdom and he said his kingdom is not of this world. And so that in some sense has to do with what I was just referring to as God's kingdom being a spiritual kingdom. He's saying it's not the kind of kingdom here. He's telling, uh, he's telling the audience here, it's not the kind of kingdom that you think it is. It's not of this world. In other words, it transcends this world. Uh, it doesn't end here, and it's not the kind of kingdom you think it is. In Luke 17, 
Jesus is also speaking about the kingdom of God when some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And of course, we know from the historical context and many different passages in the Gospels that the people at the time were expecting uh, the kingdom of God to be something else different entirely from what it actually was. They were expecting the kingdom of a political and military overthrow of the oppressors of the Jewish people and a restoration of uh, the sovereignty of the people of Israel. So they misunderstood their own prophets and conceptualized and believed that this was what the kingdom was going to become. And so when the Pharisees asked Jesus the question, when is your kingdom going to come? Jesus' answer was that the kingdom of God, and I'm paraphrasing here, was not something that's observable. It's not something that you can point to in a physical or visible sense. It's not something you say, oh, here, there's the kingdom. But rather what Jesus said was this, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And again, that's in Luke chapter 17. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the King James Version renders it, the kingdom of God is within you, which I believe is an unfortunate and misleading translation. Uh, it really has more to do with the kingdom of God is in your midst. So I think what Jesus meant by this, the kingdom of God is in your midst, is a bit multifaceted. I think what he was saying it is, it's among you. In other words, to the people he was speaking of at that very time who are looking for the kingdom yet to come, Jesus was saying, the actual king is standing right in front of you. It's in your midst. It's in your presence, if you will. Uh, and uh, and he was also, also you know, obviously comment, commentating on this idea that I already mentioned that this is not this kingdom is not a military or political power that they were expecting, uh, but that they were looking for something uh, that was not going to arrive in the way they thought, but it was in their midst already. And the kingdom, you know, another way to, to look at this is they, they were still looking for the future, waiting for the kingdom to arrive. And Jesus was telling them that the kingdom was already coming into fruition. And since it's a spiritual kingdom in this life, first and foremost, uh, it's a kingdom within the hearts of the righteous to the obedient followers of Jesus. In that sense, the kingdom was already in their midst. It was already among them. It was already right in front of their faces if you will. And so these are just part of uh, some other ways to kind of help us aid in our understanding of what the kingdom is. Related to this, and another intriguing aspect of the kingdom of God, as we understand it from these New Testament passages, is that many theologians have, have phrased it this way, that there's, uh, there's two aspects or qualities to the kingdom, if you would. It's both a now but not yet quality. In other words, the kingdom of God exists now in one sense or in one meaning of, 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 of understanding, uh, but yet it's still to come in another way. So in other words, it's both present here now, but also in the future. And this has to do with the spiritual versus the physical aspect, uh, and both of that it's, uh, it's already coming to fruition, but not yet completely fulfilled aspect. So for, for, for example, um, you know, both Jesus and John the, the, uh, the uh, Baptist are quoted as saying in the Gospels, repent, 
the kingdom of God is at hand and repent, the kingdom is at hand. So at hand means it's here, it's starting, it's among you now. It began with uh, the bursting of Jesus Christ under the scene of human history. Uh, that's when the genesis of the kingdom of God uh, began. But yet there's another sense uh, in when the kingdom is yet to come. And when Jesus taught the disciples to play, pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, he told them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And uh, in some translations, it renders it this way, let your kingdom come. So we're understanding that it's here now, but it's not yet fully come to the earth. It, the beginning of the spiritual fruition has already begun, but the consummation of the kingdom is not yet upon us. So in the, in the present tense, if you will, it's a spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And yet in the future tech, uh, aspect, uh, the future tense, there is this physical and eternal aspect of the kingdom. And uh, well, how can it be both, you say? How can, how can it be both spiritual and physical? How can it be uh, both now and to come? Well, currently it is God's will and God's plan to redeem, deliver, and renew a people. But ultimately, God, in, God intends uh, for the whole world, even the whole universe, if you will, to be completely reformed. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. We call this the consummation of the age. It's the ultimate end, the ultimate uh, finish, the ultimate completion of God's uh, eternal plan. So there is both a now and a not yet aspect to the kingdom. Now those who are willing and obedient subjects to the king can be said to be a part of his kingdom, but there will come a day at the return of Christ and the consummation of the age in which the kingdom will take on an eternal perspective and also a physical aspect when God's plan is consummated. Now, as a side note here, I just mentioned this very quickly before we sign off for today, that some have supposed that the phrase kingdom of God and uh, another uh, similar phrase in the New Testament, kingdom of heaven, some have said, well, these have are two different things. They have two different meanings. Uh, for example, there's some folks that say one has to do with a universal kingdom and the other has to do with a coming millennial kingdom that you read about in the book of Revelations. Perhaps say one say one has to do with the spiritual kingdom and one has to do with the coming physical kingdom. There's a variety of different ways in which people have tried to explain that there's a difference. But let me make my position clear. Uh, these do not mean two different things. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two synonymous and interchangeable phrases in the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular. In fact, throughout the New Testament, if you do a word search, only Matthew, the Gospel writer Matthew, only Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't use it to refer to anything different from what I just explained pertaining to the kingdom of God. Uh, rather, we know that that's not the case. He's not talking about something different because some of the very events in which he said these terms, some of the very parables that he taught and spoke about, some of the exact same situation, there are parallel accounts in some of the other Gospels in which, again, the same scenarios, the same events, the same words that Jesus spoke, but the phrase is rendered kingdom of God 
by the other gospel writers. And so we know that he's talking about the same thing. And if that weren't enough, also Matthew himself used the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably at least one passage and maybe others. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is in Matthew 19. In verse 23, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the very next verse, so this would be Matthew 19 and 24, Christ proclaims, And again, I tell you. So again, he's reiterating, he's repeating the same thing, the same concept. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So in two consecutive verses, he used the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And he was reiterating the exact same concept, just using a slightly different phraseology, but they were synonymous and interchangeable. That's clear from this context of this verse, as well as the parallel accounts in other gospels. So in summary, what does the kingdom of heaven mean? Well, in the broader uh, sense of uh, the Old Testament in particular, and some of these Old Testament passages, we can think of God's kingdom or the kingdom of God, uh, referring to God's sovereignty, his rule, reign, and authority in general, that is, over all the universe and over all creation. So in one way, kingdom of God means everything that God created, which is everything that exists. That's God's kingdom, and we see that referred to in that way in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament specifically, it takes on a much more narrow definition and meaning. Uh, and that has to do with the spiritual rule of the lives of willing, righteous human subjects. Those individuals are said to make up or enter into the kingdom of God. And as I said, it has both present and future implications, and it has both spiritual and ultimately physical, literal, eternal implications as well. So that's my response to that question, uh, what is the kingdom of God? I hope it helped you to think about things and, uh, and uh, let me know what you think uh, about this response. Well, that's all I have for today on this topic. And I thank you so much for listening in to Bible FAQ today. Uh, so until next time. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Thank you so much again for taking the time to listen today. I'll see you next time.